All right. Well, welcome to uh, Reflection as a Service. This is our first podcast, our first episode. Myself, Paul Merrill with James Jeffers. And uh, this is going to be a little bit rough because we haven't done it before, but we're going to figure it out as we go and hopefully our listeners will stick with us. So, James, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep, I'm James Jeffers. I've been working with Paul off and on, different capacities for, what, since 2008? That sounds right. Yeah. And uh, uh, what do I do? I like to think that I make uh, websites that have a big impact for <laughs> for anyone. Uh, that's kind of what I've been doing the last uh, few years. Before that, I worked for different startups. Uh, I was a DevOps person, and then I was a straight-up developer before that at Microsoft and at IBM and a couple other startups that uh, no one's ever heard of. And uh, that's that's like me in a nutshell. Yeah, and so we met back at Microsoft, and you said in 2008, and at the time we were both developing in C++, which was fun. Uh, <laughs> I've been a software engineer for about the last 15 years I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm also the founder of Beaufort Fairmont, which is in Cary, North Carolina. And I created my company, Beaufort Fairmont, to rid the world of bad code, and we do that through automated testing. So we write software to test your software. And basically, we can do whatever your company needs for that. Um, We have exceptional software engineers that work with a variety of open source tools like Robot Framework, Cucumber, Selenium WebDriver, and others. We're proficient in C Sharp, Java, JavaScript, Objective-C, and others. And once again, that's BeauftFairmont.com, or you can call us at 984-244-2313. But uh, a little bit about Reflection as a Service and where the name came from. So that's going to be the name of this podcast. And the, the name came from a, a talk that I was doing with Tiska over in Cary. And someone came up to me and we were talking a little bit about uh, the, the talk that I was doing was why people have to like you for your automated testing to work. And the individual was telling me that a lot of what I was talking about was just what its reflection is, thinking about what it is you're learning. And a lot of that isn't happening these days because it's so easy to just go find answers on the web from Google or wherever. And the reflection part may not be happening as much. So I was like, well, maybe I could package that and sell it. And what would it be called? It'd be called reflection as a service. But then the individual isn't actually doing the reflection. So is it worth anything? So I guess that's what we're going to find out, James. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, when we were talking about doing this, both of us um, like talking about technology. We are both into development and software engineering, and we both like, um, uh, I, I guess that's kind of our world is tech. Yeah. So we thought of a couple of ideas of what to talk about, what we wanted Reflection as a Service to be. What other ideas did you have about what you want this to be, James? Well, I think it's not just tech, but I think like what's become more and more important to us as we get further along in our our careers is that we realize that yeah, the technical parts that's that's part of the job, but I think what's becoming more and more clear to me is that dealing with people is is that's looming bigger and bigger. And like the technical part is sufficient, but I, I don't think it's or rather I think it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Just to be te- technically proficient, you need to also know how to talk to people. You need how to get along with people. You need how to how to navigate personal relationships. If you can't do that, you're not going to go very far. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other piece of it is the business piece, which we didn't even mention. But entrepreneurship is big with both of us. We've both got 
projects in the wings and we both got things that we've tried in the past and uh and, and so far we haven't had huge successes yet unless you're hiding your gold bars underneath your house somewhere if i was i would <laughs> i wouldn't tell anyone <laughs> <laughs> well we're on a podcast so now everyone knows you hide them in your call space so anyway um <laughs> well so we were gonna we were gonna talk about a few different ideas today and and we've kind of got the idea of what we want this thing to be we'd love to hear from everyone we've got a new twitter address it's reflection aas on twitter reflection aas so make sure to follow us on there and we'll update you with new podcasts and new information new things we're thinking about we also want to hear from listeners on there but I guess the couple things we want to talk about today, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of persistence lately, and you said you wanted to talk a little bit about pricing, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So let's start out with persistence. Um, did you have any thoughts right away when I, when I said I wanted to talk about that, James? Well, I, I did, and I, and I thought about it, and it actually occurred to me this afternoon that I, I wasn't I didn't clarify my assumption about what you meant by persistence. Yeah. Either you mean persistence like I'm going to persist an object to a database or persistence meaning stick with it. Yeah, the, the first. Okay. The first. Yeah. All right. Yep. Yeah. But um, I guess it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. So I, I was asked again to speak at TISCA uh, 2016. I spoke at 2014 and did a workshop at that point. This next workshop the idea that I've come up with is to talk about data strategies within automated testing. And I think that there are only a few really big patterns to look into there. And I think that I could provide a really good workshop or I plan to provide a really good workshop in March uh, in Chapel Hill for that. And I think uh, as I've been thinking about this, the idea of persistence has just kind of been sitting in the back of my head and, and trying to work itself out. I've had a bunch of different thoughts. Um, one was, Aside from just the technical aspect of persistence, why is persistence important in the first place and where did it come from? And I started thinking about what would be the first instance of persistence with humans. My thinking would be that it was just scribbling a, a, a tally mark on the ground somewhere. Yeah. And, and then I started thinking, well, why is that important? Why did we use tally marks or why did we need to count anything? And really, it's, it's very much like computers, the way that I think about it, that if you have a tally mark down on the ground, you no longer have to think about however many are there, and you can use your brain for something else. Yes. And I think the human brain is really bad at doing more than one thing at a time. So storing information like how many of something and then doing a computation with that how many of something are two different things, but if, at least if you persist the information outside of your head, then you can do the computation with whatever you've persisted. So that was my thinking of maybe maybe one idea of where persistence came from in humans, and it's very similar to what happens in computers, right? I, I'm not doing this podcast alone, am I? No. I'm oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were, that was a rhetorical question or you were like, uh, do you agree? But yeah, I do agree, and I think uh, I, I think it's it's probably also a matter of uh, humans becoming aware that their own memories are fallible. Because so if you don't, if you if you're like, well, this is really important that I remember this, or that this fact is is encoded somehow outside of my own mind, yeah, then pr that's what are your options? Well, you can tell it to somebody else, but then you're like, well, if my mind is fallible because that's a characteristic of of how people think, 
you really can't trust it. other people's memory. You need to, like you said, persist it in the real world. You need to mark it on a tree, scribble it on the ground, uh, make a mark on a clay tablet, and fire it, whatever you need to do. Or turn some magnet on or off or something, right? So, yeah, that's cool. yeah, so I mean, that's what we do in computers all the time. And then, I mean, basically that turns into a register. So you've got one register with one number and another register with another number. And then that computation is happening within the processor that in this instance we're calling the human mind. But later on it becomes the, uh, the computer processor. And we even get to the point now where we persist our algorithms, we persist our, our computations and how we think. Um, and that's getting more and more complicated every day. But I guess bringing that back a little bit to the idea of this talk that I'm going to do, um, there were some similarities in that initial thought of someone making a tally mark on the ground. Um, because that's like a hard-coded number, right? I mean, you put whatever number that is on the ground in front of you, and, and, and it's hard-coded. Well, that's the very same way that most people learn to code. And it's the very same way that most people learn to do automated testing, which is we put the data right into the test case. We hard code it in the test case. And that's that first instance of how do we use data within an automated test. And I don't know. I, that's kind of where my brain was going with that. And maybe this subject doesn't have a lot of legs, but it's just kind of what I've been thinking about lately. You know, I think you're right. I think you know, for, for a beginner, especially if they're teaching themselves something like programming, uh, and I, I'm trying to think back to the days when I was working on uh, this book. It was like a thousand and one basic, hundred and one basic programs, and uh, I was uh, slapping those out on the T99 4A. And I remember, uh, you know, looking at the programs that they had written versus the ones that I was trying to write myself. And it it was weird because the ones I was writing, like you said, you know, the 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 use of data was it was very direct. There wasn't a lot of abstraction or, or, or indirection. So uh, if you wanted to use a value, I would just put the value directly in an expression and not worry about the fact that if I wanted to change the notion of what that value represented, I'd have to physically change it in a bunch of different parts of the program. But then I started observing you would look in this, this so-called professionally written book of programs, and people were using these variables. And I think I, I remember the exact moment when it finally – like the tumblers turned over to my head and I finally realized, oh, like that's why you would want to use a variable. Like, oh, it can it can hold a value and the value can change. And, you know, suddenly, uh, yeah, you have the notion that, that you are storing a value, but, but you can change the meaning of that value uh, in one place and still have the same behavior, uh, just different operations on that, on that value. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty critical uh, understanding. And I do think yeah. that, and in fact, maybe I think maybe that's a big problem with how we teach people to to do approach programming if they've never done it before. We sort of just start throwing all these concepts at them, and to us, it's just the way to do it. But I think for a beginner's mind, maybe that'd be a real interesting experiment to like strip out the, the notion of variables. Yeah, well, I think it happens a lot. I mean, when, the more automated testing that I look at, and the more times that I've seen it, um, I think it's it's very typical to go in and hard code values first. So whether it's a set of usernames or something from an existing database um, and without the thought of what could happen to that database or what will happen to that database, or is that the same database you're going to be working with or the same you know, set of data in that database that you're going to be working with. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine with me as, you know, going in and helping folks out with their automated testing. It's perfectly fine 
if we've got stuff working and it's actually testing the system under test, I don't care if it's hard coded or not. I mean, it's doing its job. It's giving feedback to development. It's giving feedback to QA and helping us understand how good the product is. But at some point, it will likely have to change. And so one of my first questions when I walk in on an engagement is, what is your data strategy? And a lot of, sometimes I get blank looks and you kind of, you kind of have to learn along with the client and with the individuals doing the automated testing, uh, where they're at and, and help them see some of these things, um, in order to get to a solution that they can maintain over the long run once I'm not there. Now, when you, when you said ask them about their data strategy, are you talking about just the test team or are you talking about the, the business as a whole? I'm talking about the, those doing automated testing, so the okay. data strategy for automated testing. Because like when you said that, I, I had those two, uh, those two notions. And I'm not sure from an automated testing perspective, if, let's say like the dev team – you know, we're going to do things, we're going to use, um, we're going to use NoSQL, right? Uh, and there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, uh, orthogonal persistence approaches that test team can take and not really worry about what the dev team is doing. And I guess depending on the code is structured, you might, they may not, may not ever have to worry about that. But I don't know, from your experience, like, is there, if you notice the dev team is using uh, Postgres, you know, relational database, I mean, is that, is that going to inform uh, how the you would you would then approach helping the uh, test automation effort? Yeah, absolutely. So whatever stack dev is using, it's usually under a lot of circumstances good to use the same stack in the automated testing effort because you can leverage the knowledge of the dev team. You can leverage their abilities whenever you need them. Um, it, you know, if you have access to them, which most most uh, QA departments do. Um, and that goes right along with the data layer as well. So whether it's um, if they're using NoSQL, a lot of times it's good to use NoSQL on the automated testing effort. It doesn't have to be that way. If you if for some reason one of my clients has gone out and hired a bunch of folks that do automated testing, uh, but yet they've all only used SQL server, and for whatever reason Dev is using something different, maybe it makes sense to use the resources you have rather than switching them over to to something they're not familiar with. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right about leveraging uh, tribal knowledge, so to speak. Because yeah. you know, you go to a place like, um, well, I, you remember this at, at Microsoft. I mean, we were going from a product that was primarily Oracle, and the word from on high was, uh, okay, now that you're a part of the big Microsoft happy family, you're going to start using SQL Server. You know, and that was a that was a that was a rough adjustment, and it wasn't because. We weren't smart, or completely we foreseeable. By the way, uh, well, <laughs> if we had, foreseen, you, you think Microsoft's going to want to use their stack on your product after they buy you? I, I that's that's so. why that's why the purchase was so surprising. But that's that's a tale for another time. Uh, but you know, everybody was like, "Well, you know, the entire product has been built around the assumptions and knowledge for Oracle," and um, you know, I think in the year. Uh, or the year and a half or two years after that decision and making those switches, I think half of our effort was on trying to iron out all the small bugs that you had pretty much experienced and had fixed under the scheme of, you know, with Oracle. And now you're, now you're on SQL server and it's like, oh, you mean 
<laughs> row locking works differently? Oh, okay. And then everyone <laughs> had to learn that the really hard way, you know, with lots of late night phone calls and uh, pagers and, uh, you know, uh, DevOps people uh, running around with their hair on fire. So, yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can avoid all of those, <laughs> all those mistakes by not having to repeat them, it's the same argument as to why every time your manager says, well, we've got to rewrite the product, you just need to dump some cold water on them immediately. Hey, <laughs> no. Like all the lessons that have been baked into the product as it is right now, even if it looks ugly, if, if it makes your skin crawl, I mean, you It looks fit. ugly. Yeah, yeah, it looks ugly because somebody stayed up until yeah. 4 o'clock in the morning figuring that bug out because some client needed it, and that's the way that it looks when it's done. Like, Yeah, yeah like don't rewrite the whole thing. And I, But, but yeah. I mean, that's just that's that uh, that's that tribal knowledge payoff, right? And so, uh, yeah, if you can, if you don't have to pay that price twice, I mean, I guess that's better unless you're in a situation where money is no object. I know I'm not. <laughs> yeah, me either. Well, you do have those gold bars underneath your house. No. So. It's not like that, <laughs> well, look, I, maybe yeah, we took that, that as, far out, as, right? it, as far as it would go. Um, so what did you want to talk about in terms of pricing? I, I think this probably yeah. gets back to the entrepreneur type of conversation. Yeah, and it's, um, it is. And, and I think if you're like a business, right, you're going you're gonna to always try to figure out ways to increase the amount of money that you're going to make. And I think as, as, a, as a budding entrepreneur – uh, I think the first thing you do, when, uh, at least what I've seen and what I've done, is when you go outside and you start working for yourself and or your own C corp or your own S corp or whatever whatever you got going on, the first thing you do is you say, well, I'm I'm a consultant and I don't have any clients, so I'm going to look around to my left and right and I see Fred's charging fifty dollars an hour and I see Bill's charging sixty dollars an hour, uh, and I I'm going to charge fifty five because that's like right in the middle. That seems appropriate. Uh, and you know, because it makes it kind of makes sense, right? You think, well, my, my product is going to be about the same as, as these other guys, and I'm going to be somewhere in the middle, so that's what I'm going to charge. And and I think that's the model that uh, everyone sort of gravitates to. And I'm I'm sure there's exceptions, right? There's people that will do something completely differently, but that's certainly what I did. I kind of looked around and said, well, what's what's the hourly rate for somebody of you know that's working on the same kind of stuff that I am? And that's what I started charging. Uh, and I noticed a couple of things about this. Um, it seemed like number one, if you're if you're that price is too low, you're going to attract customers that are not the best. And my big fear was that if I made it too high, of course, I'd turn people away. Uh, I have not yet come across a client where I've increased my hourly rate, let's say, and the client's been scared off. I've usually been, I haven't had that experience, but. I did notice that if I was charging them hourly, uh, I was getting better and better at doing certain tasks. And so, uh, in the beginning of a project, uh, not knowing anything, I had one client, you know, where it took me seven hours to do uh, a couple of changes, including you know, mucking around with the schema and changing how some web pages looked. And in the end, it it, it totaled up to I don't know, like seven thousand dollars worth of work, and they were kind of shocked. And um, the, pro- the guy who was kind of managing the project said, well, you know, they're, they're kind of upset that it took this much time and or, or that it took this much money. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, I, I'd much rather work with them for a longer period of time than, than just get the money now and never see them again. So if they want to take a, a cut, you know, out of that price, I'm willing to negotiate. And they never really came back on that. But 
it got me to think about how, you know, in the beginning I was really inefficient. And so it was really punishing them, right? Because I had to spend all this time learning. And so it was time out of my day. So of course I'm going to, I'm going to build however much time it took. Yeah. And it, you know, it wasn't like I was wasting time not doing anything. It was just trying to learn their system. So, well, that's not what you do. I mean, I know you, I know you work hard. Yeah. But um, then I started noticing that as time went on, of course, they would ask for other changes. And I, I began to notice that the amount of time it would take me to make a change was going from hours to an hour to less than an hour. And I thought, wait a minute. Now, now the shoe's on the other foot. So for the, the changes that they want, of course, I'm really much more efficient at their system, right? I've accumulated all the knowledge and skill for just their particular business. And I can make a change that's going to really help them. But I'm only going to get a fraction of right. an hour's worth of work. And it's like, well, right. this is not good, right? I just paid for me to, <laughs> to get better at this. And it's like it's like uh, someone said about the Sex Pistols. You know, when they first started playing, like they, they were terrible at their at their musicianship. And they had to like tape little tabs to their to their strings so they can know what chords to play. And then <laughs> they played enough shows and did enough music where they eventually they started getting good at it, right? I mean, that's just like every every person who has to develop a skill, even if you're, you're terrible at it, you eventually will get skilled at it. And, you know, and then but it's like normally people appreciate that. And I'm sure they like the outcome, but as, as the person doing it, you're like, wait a minute, if I'm getting better, I should be seeing, uh, you know, more money out of this. Like, and so I started doing a lot of research about other folks that were kind of seeing the same phenomenon. And, you know, most developers were like, well, that's just the way the business is. I mean, lawyers do it and plumbers do it. So we got to do it too. And I actually uh, was interested in like finding out if anybody was doing something different. Right. And um, I actually found a really great podcast called uh, the art of value. Uh, yeah. You, I just started listening into that. That's a yeah. good one. With Kirk Kirk Bowman is the guy who runs it. And actually I think I found them through Ed Gandia, who does a show on freelancing. And I apologize, I don't remember the name of it, but that's how I, I kind of found it. And so he his story is that he, he went to a conference where a guy was giving a, a a presentation on value pricing. And he was and Kirk Bowman was defending the hourly pricing. And um, after their debate, uh, he realized that the other guy in, in the debate uh, had brought up some really valid criticisms of the hourly billing. And so he he went back to him and had more discussions and realized that he really wanted to try the value pricing, and that's pretty much what he's been doing since. And so in a nutshell, value pricing is essentially the notion that the amount of money that you charge somebody for your work is based on the value that the, the customer receives or, or feels that they're getting out of the, the transaction. So um, – of course, this is different than, than hourly pricing, and it doesn't really matter how much time you spend. So, uh, yeah, there is a danger that you could, you know, underprice the the uh, the value, right? But I think, as Kirk Bowman points out, a lot of this it's uh, it's an art, not necessarily a strict science. So, it's a skill that you have to learn, and I've been trying to learn it. And um, so, I know that's that's kind of where I am, and I've got some clients that I still do hourly work for. Uh, but I've got a current client that I'm trying to uh, sort of move away from that model to a more goal-oriented slash value-priced model, and I'm and I'm really eager to try this with some new clients. But I, so, what, what do you think, Paul? Like in your experience, like when when I say value pricing and I kind of describe it, what what comes up for you? Um, well, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch, but I think 
I think, first of all, it's probably good to remember that the people who are listening to this podcast right now are not all entrepreneurs. They're not all out on their own and living off of what they kill, yeah. uh, for lack of a better metaphor. And so if you're going to try value pricing as an employee, it's probably not a good idea. Like, don't go to yes. your boss and be like, hey, look, this is the value I created. You should pay me four times my salary or whatever, because that's not how we think. And I, that, uh, another part of that, and I'm not saying that anybody, you or me, make four times what an employee makes, because most of the time it's not even close to that. When you're starting your own business, you, uh, you, you, you really have to be willing to sacrifice a whole lot financially and otherwise to get going. And there are times when you have no clients and times when you have more than you can handle, but not enough to hire somebody else. So, um, there, there's a whole lot of risk and things that go along with going out on your own. And it is very different from being an employee. However, for those of you who are looking that way and those of you who have already gone this way, I mean, I think what you have to say, James is really important. And I really like the podcast that you told me about the art of value. I think that, you know, I've had those conversations with clients before. Um, one in particular made a comment similar to, I feel like I'm taking on all the risk when you bring up this type of pricing. So in other words, I was just coming up with one number for the entire project, the entire deliverable. Yep. He says, I feel like I'm taking all the risk. And I couldn't even understand his point of view. Um, each of these conversations, I think, is an acquired skill. Uh, I think it's something that you have to fight for to have, you have to fight for the knowledge to have the conversation correctly and in a way that benefits everyone. Because I'm not going out trying to price one project so that I can make the most money. Yeah. I'm tr going out and pricing a project in one way because I believe that's in line with how you as the customer value the work that I'm going to do. And it also is satisfactory to me as a person performing the work. And I, I think that there's a, there's a balance there. And I think that that's what I was not able to present to that particular customer. I couldn't see his point of view because in my mind, I was taking all the risk. Like if you don't take me up on this proposal, you know, I don't, I don't know what we're going to, we're going to eat ramen noodles next week. Like, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like I need, I need the money worse than you do, buddy. Like you're, and he's, he's not seeing it that way. Uh, I really appreciated the fact that he looked at it as if it was his own money within the company. I think when customers do that, when, you know, vice presidents and uh, CTOs and CIOs and whatever, look at the money that they're spending as if it's their own, we end up coming to a more effective and efficient means of, uh, of working together. Now he, the, the, uh, I'm assuming it's a, he, it could be a, she, uh, but your client who said, I feel like I'm taking on the risk, uh, was that because uh, like he could pay the money and he wasn't going to get the result that you said he was going to get? Or was there some other factor that made him say, ooh, this looks – this is – I'm taking all the risk here? You know what? I don't know. And I think I wasn't prepared to even understand it at the time. I think I wasn't at a, a level to understand where he was coming from. So um, – yeah, and I'm not sure I was able to investigate any more that time. Yeah. So, but that's okay. I mean, that's how you learn. You go in and you try these things, and if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, and you learn from it and move on. So. Yeah, and I actually was thinking about uh, if you're if you're not doing your own thing and you are an employee, I think understanding pricing is important, and, and this is why because 
the better you understand your employer's uh, business and how they price and how they make money, uh, the more secure you're going to be in your own job. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because, yeah, because yeah. if if you if you if you even demonstrate to your boss, your manager, that uh, you understand how the money is flowing into the business and then down into your organization, whether that's directly or through some other bureaucracy, right? And you can you can demonstrate that you understand the balances that have to go on. I think that's going to like when the boss looks at the list of people, like they're just like, well, we got to cut heads. Uh, we got to we got to cut payroll. You know, he, is he going to get rid of the people that are, you know, aware of what's going on? Are they going to get rid of the people that are like, this person never makes a good decision because they, <laughs> they just, you know what I'm saying? And then also, but, that's not, but you but you know that's not how it works. Well, I, it's not it's not a guarantee, right? Because no, we, I mean because that. because if you or I were to go back right now and I were to go in as an automation engineer at a company and you were to go back as a developer at a company or or whatever. We're working for someone who may not have those concepts down themselves. Oh, they may man. not understand. In fact, I think it's highly likely that, a, that many managers don't fully understand how the business functions. Um, in fact, well, I think that m- many times it's, it's much higher than that, that one starts to understand how all those things fit together. So it's not necessarily of value to a first-line manager to have some individual contributor that knows more than them and sees more than them. That's in fact a threat. Oh sure, and uh, it's not like we've never met anybody like that, eh? But um, <laughs> but uh, I, I but I have known bosses that that because the the size of the company, like they did have to have their finger on where the money was coming in and how it was spent. So if you do have a manager who's kind of like in that uh, in that position, Never. yeah, they have some kind of fiduciary responsibility. I think that's a huge leg up, but I also think it's important for you to know that. Like, just just the fact that you're aware that your manager doesn't know that, I mean, that's information that most people don't even consider. Yeah, yeah, and then it's just a matter of keeping your mouth shut at the right times, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, we, we've yeah by- <laughs> that's a really good point. I mean, employees need to know that too. And I, I I agree with you, provided um, the the time and place is right for them to share their knowledge. It's real. It is really important for an employee to know that. Yeah. Yeah, and so. Like you said, this is this is something that's been big on my mind uh, for a lot of different reasons. But um, I think in the tech field, you know, I, I just uh, and I, if I if so, I, I did actually bring this up to to some of my colleagues well, last week. I kind of actually, how did I bring this up? Oh yeah, in a completely uh, provocative manner, I went on Twitter and I basically <laughs> said hourly pricing, unethical or not, discuss. And um, no one, no one responded to that, and so that's because you only have ten Twitter followers. <laughs> yeah, that, kidding, well, that's I'm that kidding. is one possibility, right? It's the kidding. people that are actually watching my tweets could be like my wife, who's like, I don't know what that means. I'm gonna find to the next thing, <laughs> or it could be people that are like, uh, I see this and it looks like bait. Like uh, the the next, well, how, how I respond to this, I'm gonna get attacked, or you know, or another option is. You know, this subject makes me feel uncomfortable because it's obvious that the answer is one way or the other, and so discussing it doesn't make any sense. And I, so I brought this up while I was uh, co-working with some folks, and um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, hand wringing and pearl clutching uh, from some quarters about uh, value pricing. They kind of saw it as a uh, kind of a I don't know, like. Uh, 
I don't slimy is not the right word. It just seemed like shady. Uh, and, and I think I kind of understand why. I think there's a lot of people out there that are uh, that sort of don't approach things in a, in a very straightforward manner. And so when you talk about value pricing, uh, it starts to set off alarms in people's heads. But I think the other part of it was that for a lot of people, like they're very comfortable doing things one way. And so if you bring up a way that might be different, uh, you know, our, our brains are wired to uh, squash changes in behavior, right? It's like, uh, why is it really hard to change habits? Because that's the way people, that's the way they behave. That's why their their brains are wired to protect you from danger by uh, making you really resistant to things that are different. And so I was kind of surprised by some of the reactions. Uh, but uh, then again, I wasn't surprised because like this is a this is a new and different way of of running your business, right? So that's why it was kind of on on my mind. Um, well, I want to hear more about it uh, as you move along and, and how it works. I know that you tried it several times, and um, I know we're not going to talk too much about. We probably shouldn't talk at all about current clients on this podcast and former clients either. Um, but uh, I'd like to learn how it works, if you can talk about it in an abstract way as we move forward with this in future episodes. Yeah, we can do. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I'll be trying it too, so we'll, we'll, we'll learn together. Um, and, of course, like I said, I don't know if James actually needs Twitter followers. What's your Twitter handle? You know what? That's a good question. <laughs> it's been so long. I think it's uh. Well, let me let me double check. I think it's JD Jeffers. Yeah, it's it's uh, at JD Jeffers. Okay. All right. And I'm at D Paul Merrill. But um, yeah, I, this is good. I, I've enjoyed talking to you this time. We've got a few things lined up for the next ones. We're gonna like I I don't know if I mentioned this, but we're gonna try to do this about once a month. We both have a lot of other competing priorities. So please don't light us on fire if we don't produce one every single month. But um, we would love to hear feedback, especially constructive feedback. Um, we're learning as we go here. This is our first try to podcast. Hopefully it's been interesting and informative. Uh, we have coming up next month Mary Thorne, who is a really great QA director. Um, she also is the coordinator for TISCA, which is um, the Triangle Association for Software Quality Assurance. And she's going to come in and talk about, I, I don't know what she's going to talk about. I think we're going to talk about quality assurance, where it's going, where it's been, probably talk a little bit about the conference. And then also, um, she's written a book that I need to read between now and then. And it's supposed to be really great. I think she co-authored it with a couple other big names in Agile development and in QA. Um, and I'm sure it's fascinating because Mary is fascinating. So I hope everyone will join us again for that when this podcast is up. Once again, look for us on Twitter at Reflection as a Service or Reflection AAS. And we've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, James. All right, Paul. <laughs>